Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Sign Guy Nation, welcome to the show on another Friday afternoon. Sign Guy with you as normal. Coach Mike on assignment today, but I got some show notes for you. If you're looking for some professional wrestling in the next couple of days, tonight. WCWO in Indianapolis, Indiana, like usual. Supreme Wrestling in Madison, Indiana. FGW in Hamilton, Ohio. HCW in Terre Haute, Indiana. ACW in Alton, Illinois. Championship Wrestling Memphis in Brighton, Tennessee. And CWC in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Tomorrow night, Relentless in Spokane, Washington, GZW in Maryville, Indiana, IPW in Kalamazoo, Michigan, FWF in Warsaw, Indiana, No Peace Underground in Orlando, Florida, featuring Madman Pondo, and the AWA and CMLL team up for a Lucha Libre show in Phoenix, Arizona tomorrow night. Without any further ado, though, I want to welcome back our guest. We had him a couple of months ago. Very happy to have him back. Lewis Rock, thank you so much for taking time to be with us once again. Hey, thank you so much for uh, wanting to have me back. I really had a good time the first time and uh, really excited to talk with you today. Well, as the fans will remember from last time, uh, you had your in-ring career, and then after that was over, you were sort of an assistant to Roddy Piper for quite a while and traveled around the roads with Roddy Piper. And in that time, Roddy came out with an autobiography and did a tour promoting that, which you were part of that tour. Roddy's children after Roddy Pass came out with a second autobiography, which uh, their father had started before he passed, did you read the second book, and did you end up comparing the two books as far as what the content was, how accurate they may have been, things of that nature? Um, yeah, so uh, I actually read the first uh, three chapters of it, and um, the reason the reason that I stopped was because, um, you know, Roddy, being on the road with him for as long as I was, he's, you know, shared with me quite a lot of his uh, childhood, his upbringing, uh, all of those different um, aspects, and... Um, as I was starting to read the book and get into it, um, you know, I was overcome with uh, a sense of wanting to protect that experience 
that that I had with him. And so um, I also didn't uh, uh, want to really know how much uh, of his upbringing and childhood and everything that that he ultimately shared with his his family uh, and kids, um, as I just didn't want to make those two comparisons. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of stuff in there. I was glad that that uh, not only did he go out to do the second book, but I was really glad that that his kids finished it um, because you know one of the things that Roddy held near and dear for a long time uh, was you know his personal life and his life before wrestling, especially in his upbringing. You know he would very generically allude to specific as or to generic aspects of it. Um, but never really elaborated uh, in full. And so the the fact that before he died, he was not only able to, you know, go uh, go back on the, the road and experience uh, some of that for himself, but then also uh, come to terms with it in a way that, that he hadn't throughout his career and the vast majority of his life, uh, it made me very happy. You know, I think the the biggest difference between the two books in the pit with Piper was, uh, you know, we did it with ghostwriter Rob Piccarello. And one of the things with uh, that process is, you know, we would go through each chapter and spend hours and hours and hours on the phone, answering questions, doing all these, these different things. And then um, Rob would ultimately then go and, and write and put together the stories based on how they were told. And so the, the format of, uh, you know, Roddy having more creative control over what went into the book and then ultimately that transferring to his kids who decided to finish it, that made me happy because when you're, you know, telling telling a story, especially your own story, having complete and total control over that narrative and, and all of that I think is important. And it was one of the things within the pit with Piper that Roddy regretted a little bit was that, it didn't really fully capture um, the, you know, Roderick George James as a person as well as um, uh, some of the aspects of Roddy Piper's career. Now, Roddy, of course, in the time that you knew and worked with him, was established in Hollywood as well. He did several different movies, several television shows. You said the last time you were here that Roddy didn't go back and watch his wrestling matches, didn't really like to watch that. But did he go back and watch his film and television work? Did he enjoy that more, or did he, did he still not like to watch himself on screen? Uh, he didn't like to watch himself on screen at all. In fact, I remember very clearly when we were on the, the book tour, which was, you know, I started with with Roddy in December of 2001, and that book tour was in November of 2002. So it was, even though it's 11 months into to you know being with him every day, um, it was still very much uh, you know a younger time in in the evolution of our relationship. And when we were on the tour bus, I remember. Uh, um, you know, we were getting all copies of his old movies and different things where, you know, when you're going town to town and doing signings, people have gifts for you and all these things. And when uh, there was a time where the kids, because uh, we had a uh, we had a 16-year-old runner with us named Nate, uh, who was little Nate, who 
was working for UPW at the time. I, I looked him up a couple of years ago. I think he, he still might, of course, much older now. And um, then for the first half of the tour, we had Colton on. And Colt, I believe, is 11 or 12, right? He's um, uh, uh, son. So when the movie had, had come on and them wanting to watch it, Roddy immediately excused himself uh, and and went, you know, back into his room. He was never a fan of watching himself on screen in any format. Um, You know, one of the interesting things is I I queried Roddy about that, you know, like, hey, if I was, you know, super famous and all over TV and this or that, you know, I'd be curious to to see myself. You know, I, I think most people think that that would probably be a natural curiosity. Um, but for Roddy, it was just all about supporting his family. He didn't care, right? Like the, the superstardom, people recognizing you everywhere. He appreciated that from the aspect of, hey, it allows me to feed my family. But personally, he couldn't stand it, right? It was a pain, pain in the ass, as he would refer to it um, directly, uh, consistently. And so, you know, that equated into his personal life as well. What wasn't a, a fan of it. In fact, um, even getting him to watch any professional wrestling of any kind uh, was notoriously uh, difficult. Um, uh, he just wasn't wasn't a fan of it. But on the flip side, um, he loved movies uh, and music uh, as long as it uh, had nothing to do with him. <laughs> uh, just recently in the last few weeks, Roddy's daughter made her AEW debut, and she got a very big ovation in Portland, as you might imagine. I know uh, the Piper name still a very big deal in the Pacific Northwest, and Roddy's children doing anything in the wrestling industry gets a particular long look here. What did you think of Ariel making her debut for AEW recently? Sure. Um, So, you know, I thought it was great. You know, when I was uh, working for Roddy, his youngest was five or six, uh, and uh, um, his oldest, 20, and and Ariel at the time, I believe, was, you know, 16, 17, somewhere in there. Um, And, and, you know, she she had uh, wanted to get into acting very much and, and did uh in fact that was kind of kind of her big thing and, and and colton was always the one that talked about wrestling and this or that you know and i know uh uh roddy you know used to say in his interviews consistently you know um uh i i'm wrestling so my kids don't have to you know i want them to go and and you know get an education and do all those things but the one thing that i know about roddy more than anything he wants his family and his kids to be happy and, you know, seeing Ariel get back, get into the wrestling industry and seeing the way that she's, you know, debuted now with AEW and all of that and looks so happy doing it, that makes me happy because ultimately that's what Roddy would want for all of his kids is for them to be happy. And I think the other piece of it, though, too, is that when Roddy spoke about, you know, I, I – I, I do this so my kids never have to. He was very much speaking from an old school industry experience, you know, and while sure, uh, there's always going to be aspects of the industry that are, are dangerous and or taboo um, or non-congruent with, uh, with, you know, good solid mental health and living, 
the industry has been cleaned up a lot. And so I know that, that piece makes me happy too, because so much of what Roddy experienced in wrestling was so negative uh, in so many ways, uh, especially the wrestler life itself. And, and much of that doesn't exist the same way today that it did then. And so I think it's fantastic. You know, anytime I hear anything about Roddy's family or kids being happy, enjoying what they're doing, any of those things, you know, I, I said it in the last interview, nothing was more important to Roddy than family. Um, and he literally sacrificed every aspect of himself for his family that, that he felt that he was able to do. And so from that regard, um, it just it makes me super happy whenever I see anybody in his family doing things that are making them happy. I'm getting into your own personal wrestling career. You obviously were in wrestling at a time where it was sort of in a big boom period. Uh, wrestling was red hot when you were an active professional wrestler, and obviously working with Roddy Piper, there's a lot of stories there. Have you yourself considered writing a book on your own personal career? Well, you know, I have uh, many times. In fact, one of the things that uh, uh, Roddy used to bring up, I mean, he probably said this 50 times over the time that we worked together was, uh, he used to say kid, because um, he always called me kid or champ. He never actually called me Lewis. <laughs> um, uh, he said, kid, you're going to have a hell of a book to write one day. Just please make sure I'm dead when you do it. And uh, um, uh, I've I've considered it very much, and I think it is something that would not only be very cathartic and therapeutic, but um, it was such a unique experience that, that I had and the fact that, you know, having effectively left working for Roddy in 2005 and then and wrestling my last match in 2007, it's incredible to me that so many years later people are still so interested to hear about this experience and um, uh, uh, still to this day, I mean, even even at my my job, it comes up all the time that you know Lewis used to be involved with professional wrestling, um, and so. Um, uh, from from that uh, from from that aspect, um, I think that uh, uh, I writing a book would probably be a good idea for nothing else, just a, a memoir. Um, because still, the other thing too, right, is like still to this day, I'll remember things or things will come up that I haven't thought about in a long time that were part of my experience uh, in the industry and and on the road with with Roddy and, and, uh, you know, initially the agreement that I had set up with Rod was that not only would I work as his assistant, but that he would teach me how to uh, wrestle. Now, granted, you know, I had already been wrestling for many years, but obviously not at the level that, that Roddy Piper wrestled at. And so, um, that was initially the plan. Um, what I ended up happening in reality was that working for Roddy monopolizes every minute and every second of your entire life. And, um, you know, uh, as, as wonderful as Roddy was, his business was a dictatorship. It was not a democracy. And he would remind you of that whenever he felt the need to. And so um, because of the way that, that, that he ran the business, 
there was really never any time for that. And so I remember we had gone down to UPW and done some business with them um, just in terms of, you know, being at the wrestling school and Roddy did a couple appearances and um, uh, I uh, actually had a match with um, uh, Bear Turk, uh, Sylvester Turkai, I think his name was in WWE, it was Bear Turka at the time um, down uh, at the UPW uh, um, uh, training uh, facility at the time, and um, it kind of became apparent quickly that either I was going to need to stop working for Roddy and go see if I could get into UPW school if I wanted to wrestle, or um, to forego having Roddy train me from a wrestling perspective and focus 100% on his business, and so I ultimately chose the latter. Um, but uh, at the same time, right, uh, seeing the behind the scenes of the business working for Roddy in many ways made me fall out of love with it um, because his experience was just so unbelievably negative and everything that he really chose to speak about when he spoke about the industry and the business overall um, was, you know, not only super negative, but, you know, avoid it like the plague. It's not something you'd ever want to do. And so when, when I realized what the price of success was, and then keep in mind at the same time, right, like we'd had all of these deaths that, that had happened between 2002 and 2005, you know, British Bulldog, uh, Kurt Hennig, uh, The Wall, uh, Tess, um, you know, many, many others. And so I really believed at the time, based on that experience, that, hey, if I get into wrestling seriously, uh, two things are going to be my reality. One is I'll be lucky to live past 40. And two is if I do, my body won't hold up. And so seeing that reality right away and then also living with Roddy and seeing how much he struggled behind the scenes to move around, um, it, it really made me fall out of love with the business in terms of me participating in it as an active wrestler. I know I took a little bit of a tangent there, but um, uh, an important part of, of the story and evolution of my relationship with, with Roddy during that time. When you were... In your active career, it was a different entertainment platform than we have now. Uh, you had broadcast television and you had cable television, and that was largely it. Uh, there was a little bit of home video from some promotions, but that wasn't something that many promotions used at that point except the national companies. Nowadays you have several different streaming services that offer platforms for the smallest of independent promotions to put their product on and get eyes on it. So it's much easier to be seen in today's world than when you were wrestling. When you were actively part of the independent circuit, do you think a lot of the promoters had given up trying to get on television at that point because of the way the marketplace was? Or do you think that, by and large, it was just 
about the right amount of wrestling on the right amount of platforms so you didn't overload the market? Yeah, no, great question. So at the time, right, the Kaforis were the only ones running uh, with any sort of of TV. Um, And so uh, I remember uh, ECCW had, um, you know, they had their shows in New West, New Westminster on the regular, and, and I would often drive up and work those or even just show up when I wasn't booked hoping to, to be able to wrestle. And um, I remember they did a couple of uh, TV tapings. I think the idea was, and, and Dave Republic uh, with with uh, with Mark or uh, Michelle Starr were, um, you know, actively running the promotion at the time. And they had filmed a couple of nights in New West. You know, they had upped their production value, the music, the shows were sold out. Um, I think with the opportunity or or wanting to be able to take tapes that they could then sell for, um, uh, you know, TV spots. So I don't think that anyone had necessarily given up on it from, from those regards, although it was well understood that, if you're an independent wrestling organization and you do get picked up, it's probably going to air between, you know, 11 a.m. and 4 in the morning uh, in between, you know, QVC selling press on nails and that sort of thing. Um, But uh, then, you know, there were uh, promoters that um, uh, didn't really ever tape any of their stuff but ran pretty consistently. Like, Like Schweitzer, for example, Pete Schweitzer ran consistently. Um, for a couple of years, um, never never really taped anything, but um, you know drew uh, good crowds and uh, um, at least at the beginning. And uh, so the market was very different to your point, right? Like I remember when you know I was based out of Seattle the whole time and basically working as far into British Columbia and as far into Oregon as as the promoters would would allow. But um, one of the uh, things like when I got booked in California in Lake Elsinore uh, through New Dimension Wrestling um, uh, to wrestle Christopher Daniels, like that was unheard of at the time. No one was getting booked out of state or out of territory with the exception of uh, a couple of guys in ECCW, Star and Leatherface, were working Korea here and there uh, through Leatherface, Rick Patterson, Leatherface's connection. Um, and then uh, um, uh, Tony Kazina was going out, out east at times. I think he used to work the Super 8 tournament here and there. Um, but, you know, it was all super kayfabe on, on the connection, how he was doing it, any of that, because the bookings were so few and far in between. I did, um, interestingly enough, um, I did uh, one time when I was 20 get a Houston booking. Um, it was kind of an interesting story. This this promoter was in town and it hit me up on the internet and um, uh, had asked me to come and meet him at a hotel room and I did and he took some pictures and then I was like 16 at the time. Um, and then after I thought about it a little bit, I realized, you know, there's a bit of a creepiness factor here and I don't know if this whole thing's on the up and up and so I I canceled that but um, uh, I did end up wrestling Chris Daniels in Southern California Um, but yeah because there wasn't you know a huge internet presence and websites were in their um, you know infancy and uh, 
uh, that sort of thing. Uh, getting booked outside of your territory was very difficult. Now, when you look back on the way wrestling was in the 90s and the early 2000s, on the independent circuit, a lot of times promoters would equate having any type of television presence, no matter what the time slot, no matter what the channel, as being a major major revenue stream. They thought that would instantly make them tons of money uh, no matter how few people were watching whatever channel or whatever time slot they had. A lot of promoters put a lot of stock on getting television at any cost, even if it made them seem kind of low rent because of the channel and the time and that type of factor. Do you think that enough promoters at the independent level really knew television and how to use television properly? Or do you think a lot of the promoters were just hearing the word television and wanted to be attached to it at any cost if they could make it? So I think any promoter wanted to be attached to television at any cost, any way that they could. However, uh, there's there's a couple of things that, that I think potentially even today, even though I'm not as familiar with the market, just based on how much indies there are versus how much is on TV. The problem back then is that booking and producing wrestling for a live event and, and in live non-televised show perspective, how you book it, how you uh, how you um, uh, place the wrestlers, how they tell their stories, the amount of time in which they need to tell their stories, um, very very different than booking wrestling for TV, right? Where the way that you tell your stories um, uh, needs to be more produced, it needs to include potential breaks for uh, commercial, it needs to involve multiple camera angles. Um, and to, to look like a legitimate product. My impression was is that no one outside of the Kaforis really had a clue as to how to book wrestling in general, let alone how you would need to book it if you were going to sell it to TV. Because the fact of the matter is, right, like, if you send a video into TV that is an hour show and it has three 15-minute uh, matches on it without interview segments, isn't well-produced, only has one or two camera angles, so on and so forth, that's not TV-ready. And so where I think a lot of the promoters uh, didn't do themselves any justice was they didn't bother learning, like, if you're going to submit a video to TV, it effectively needs to be ready to go. Now, sure, whatever station or whoever picks it up is going to help you with some of the producing and, and you know, probably lend some additional camera angles, this or that. But you've got to, at minimum, give them a vision through your product that will translate to ratings for viewers. And, um, you know, Don Koss and, and Ivan and Jeff Kapori, I think they, they understood that uh, well, which is why we had TV 
Um, but most of the other promoters, uh, I, I really felt like didn't. Um, and, and that's because, you know, like one of the things with wrestling is like, you either have promoters that are dealing with booking that don't know anything about wrestling and are just, you know, thinking what they think is cool or this or that, or you have, uh, them designating the most veteran wrestler as the head booker. Um, who's usually there to protect themselves and a select few number of people as opposed to booking in a way for the whole organization to make money and move up. And so very little of that existed um, at the time. And so um, as a result, you know, a lot of uh, independent promotions that um, would even get the live shows down quite well uh, still struggled to get on TV because they didn't understand the difference between producing a live show for a non-TV audience and producing a live show for a television audience. Very well said. One of the things that has haunted professional wrestling in the Pacific Northwest for many, many years and continues to still be present today is the athletic commissions. Oregon has one, as does Washington. Uh, Washington has been a very, very strict commission as far as what is needed from a promoter to run shows. Uh, They've loosened up a little bit in the last few years due to a new law being passed. Oregon, for a very long time, was strict enough that WWE did not come to that state for over a decade. When you were actively wrestling, how much direct contact did you usually have with the athletic commissions? Great question. A lot. Um, uh, So um, uh, British Columbia didn't have an athletic commission, so we didn't have to worry about it there. Um, California didn't have one either, or or let me rephrase, neither had one that regulated professional wrestling. In Oregon at the time, um, uh, they had, like you said, such a strict commission that uh, even being able to put on shows there or or even get licensed was um, a a difficult uh, task. Uh, I remember getting my Oregon wrestling license was very in-depth. uh, it was like a five or six page physical. You had to have blood tests. You had to, um, you know, submit multiple rounds of paperwork. Um, and um, then they also ran background checks on you, which, you know, was uh, was very prohibitive. In Washington State, um, yeah, the guy named Jim Hood ran it. Um, uh, while the the good majority of the time that. Uh, uh, that I was there, and they had a five or six page application process that asked for all these different tests and all these different things. However, you only had to submit the cover page so uh, along with your check and so my personal opinion of athletic commissions regulating professional wrestling was that it's nothing more than a money grab scam. I mean, the commissioner, I mean, I remember Jim Hood, right? Nice guy, but, like, he shows up in a suit and just chain smokes cigarettes the entire time, uh, waiting to make sure he can collect his checks. 
from wrestlers either needing to renew or who haven't yet paid but want to wrestle that night. Um, and, and Washington State one was, was a joke. I mean, the cover page was literally like your name and address and a signature from a doctor, whereas, you know, pages two through six were super in-depth. But since you didn't have to turn it in, no one bothered giving it to their doctors either. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, it uh, was definitely prohibitive at the time. They were always at all of the shows. Unlicensed wrestlers uh, started waiting until they would leave because they oftentimes wouldn't stay for the whole show. So we would put them on last if they were unlicensed. And then I'll never forget, um, you know, both the commissioner's names were Jim. Jim Hood was Washington, and I want to say Jim Cassidy, but I may have the first name wrong, was Oregon. Um, And uh, I remember one time Jim Cassidy was at a show, and and he left at intermission, and he said something to the effect of to the boys, he says, and don't even think about throwing them unlicensed wrestlers on after I leave because I've been checking the Internet. You know, this is in the, the infancy of the Internet um, to find out. And so, you know, they did a good job of, of scaring people off from operating without a license in Oregon, and, and a couple people had been rumored to try it and, and then were blackballed from ever getting a license. So. Um, there was never a show I was at that I didn't interact with with the commission in Washington and Oregon. Um, but again, I mean, it, it, it was a joke. It was a money grab, nothing more. Oh. In fact, one other thing that's relevant I'll throw out there, when I got my oh, first sure. wrestling license, I was 16 years of age. I literally put my actual birth date on the form that clearly said you had to be 18 years of age to get licensed and got my license back in the mail in no time. Um, so, I mean, if that gives you any idea of, of how serious Washington took their uh, their commission for wrestling, they just wanted that check that was paper clipped to the form. Now, the way it is today wrestlers can get on the internet and search out wrestling gear makers and they have dozens of choices of people that they can contact and get their wrestling gear custom made in the era where you wrestle i'm sure it was a little more difficult to find people that made wrestling gear i'm sure there were fewer of them at that point in time where did you go to in order to get wrestling gear yeah, great question. So initially, for the first uh, three years, two years of my career, um, I would actually go to Hot Topic, believe it or not, because Hot Topic had pants that were baggy. They were uh, – you could move around well in them. And they fit in with, you know, at the time I started, you know, I was 16, so I was kind of, you know, in the – the you know younger teenage uh, kind of mentality, and so I would go there and buy like super baggy pants that wouldn't stick to the canvas or the rubber mats, depending on whose ring you were working in. Um, and then um, I would buy high tech Magnum boots, and then um, would file the soles down to flat uh, on them. After a couple of years, highspots.com started the kind of the first website that was willing to, you know, kind of ship 
around wrestling gear. And so then I started getting trunks and uh, singlets and a few other things um, from high spots. And then I can't remember the guy's name for the life of me, but there was uh, – I was up in Canada, and uh, I want to say it was Mark Starr saw me in the locker room and said, you know, what the F are you doing with boots like that? And uh, I said, well, I don't know where to get any wrestling boots. Um, and uh, and so I've just been using these forever. And, and uh, he gave me the name of someone. And I remember going to his shop, and, and he took measurements and, and all these different things. He's an older guy. And he had pictures of Ultimate Warrior and Rick Rude, I think, and a couple others that he had been making boots for for a long time. Uh, and I told him the color I wanted. And um, – um, this was after I had also broken my leg and ankle. And so my right ankle still to this day was like twice the size of my left one. And so, you know, custom boots were that much more critical for me because, you know, I, I had two vastly different ankles. Um, and uh, about seven weeks later, uh, books back in, in Canada and I, I showed up at the shop and the guy had the boots for me and, uh, and then I uh, I used those um, throughout the the rest of my career. In fact, I still have them. Um, uh, so uh, my first pair of wrestling boots was almost three years into my my um, you know seven year career as an active competitor. I mentioned the broken leg and ankle. We know injuries are a part of the wrestling business if you're in it for any length of time. What are some of the scarier injuries that you witnessed on shows that you did? Sure. Well, two of them come to mind. Um, so me and uh, me and Mark Large were wrestling um, in a tag team match against uh, Chad Manning and. Maybe Bruce or Brian. I can't can't exactly remember, but um, I went to do a baseball slide in the Kafori's mat. It wasn't a canvas; it was a black rubber type deal. Um, oh, so it was very prone to um, sticking, to say the least. And uh, I went to do a baseball slide, and I had never done a baseball slide before, not even in training. Um, uh, which is kind of remarkable when I think about it because I'd had over 200 matches at the time and had trained for over a year, but I'd never done a baseball slide. And uh, so, you know, uh, one of calls the spot and I go, and uh, basically as I go to put my legs out in front of me to go under it, my right leg caught the mat, the boot, and the whole rest of my body went forward uh, and my knee bent, but my foot was stuck behind me. And so – what it did is it completely dislocated my ankle toward the anterior and deltoid ligaments and then spiral fractured um, my uh, fibula. Um, and so uh, I remember uh, that as I went to do that baseball slide, you know, I only kind of made it halfway. And um, I remember Chad Hawk seeing that I hadn't made it all the way through, just grabbed me by the hair and started punching me because, you know, we kind of screwed up mid-spot, so to speak. And I just remember, you know, uh, whispering to him and Carney that I, you know, had uh, I said, I just, I just broke my ankle or I just broke my leg. Um, and, you know, he's like saying to me, what, what? And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm like, we got to go home. 
And uh, so the finish of the match was me doing a top rope Hurricane Rana um, onto my opponent and then getting the pin from there. So the moment I try to stand up, I can't because, you know, my leg's broken, my ankle's dislocated. Um, However, I knew that we were being filmed for TV and that I needed to finish this match. And so, um, you know, I quickly, quickly told them we're going home right now. And uh, so I still to this day, I'm not exactly sure how I did it, but I climbed to the top rope, uh, uh, holding on to my opponent who was seated up there and somehow managed to, uh, you know, wrap my legs around their head and do a backflip and throw them off. And uh, um, we did a quick roll-up finish. I won and rolled out of the ring and then was helped to the back and taken to the hospital. And, and that's where I found out the seriousness of my injuries. Um, I'll tell you, it was interesting, though. Um, so, you know, as I was recovering, which took me about six months, I would still come down to the shows and – and the Kaforis, man, bless their heart. They would even give me gas money, even though I wasn't working, just for showing up. Like, that was such a meaningful thing to me at the time that, like, I never asked for it. I didn't expect it. And, you know, in a sea where promoters, you know, promise you one thing and give you another, like, they were never not fair. And and, and I always loved that about them. But um, as I started coming back into the locker room and everything, people started talking about just how incredibly tough I was, like, this kid had a broken leg and a dislocated ankle, and here he climbs to the top rope and, uh, you know, does this backflip Hurricane Rana and finishes the match. Like, how is that possible? And I never understood that for many years because, for me, right, the number one rule in wrestling is the show must go on. And so the fact that I was injured, God forbid that that would stop me from delivering the product that I'm being paid to deliver for TV taping, no less. And so while for me, it was not about being tough at all. It was just about, hey, I'm getting paid to do a job here and I need to do it well. And we were also positioned uh, in a really prime spot on the card and, and we're in the main event for TV that night. And so for me, that was all that it was about. But um, I'll never forget, for the next two or three years, people brought that up at every show, like, oh, yeah, he's the kid that did the backflip off the top with the broken leg and the dislocated ankle. I mean, I, I think I understand it a bit more now, but, you know, when wrestling is all you eat, breathe, sleep, you know, forget your body or your self-sacrifice, right? Like, you're there for the sport. And so... Um, that ultimately actually led to me continuing to get booked and get booked in better and better spots over the next few years because of what had happened that night. So, yeah, it was just really, really interesting how it all worked out and how I ended up getting credit for, you know, supposedly being so tough when, uh, you know, I was just there to do right by the support and the people paying me. We sort of have that in common. I also broke a leg and dislocated an ankle in a match and finished said match, so we got a little bit in common there. Wow. Um, yeah. Phenomenal. You, and you, you see, I mean, you know how it is, right? Like, you're in the middle of the match. you got to deliver, right? Like, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop being real just because we're hurt, you know? Like, uh so many non-wrestlers, right? They'll never understand that. You tell them and they just think you're crazy. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And I also tried to tell the referee and Carney, unfortunately, 
to my surprise, he did not speak earning, I found out. Yeah. That's always fun. You know, you can't you can't help but want to give the next comers of tomorrow, you know, the opportunities to thrive. But at the same time, you know, Carney is something earned. It's not something just given away to anyone who shows up. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've ran into that a few times myself. Um, one of the big topics in the last several weeks within the wrestling industry in general is that potentially WWE is going to be sold. Uh, the speculation is Vince McMahon returned to the company with the sole purpose of preparing for a sale. Uh, there are people that think that this is blown out of proportion. There are people that think the sale is imminent. There's people that think that waters are being tested, but nothing serious is happening. Obviously, if there was a sale, it would be a major change within our industry just because of WWE being one of the global leaders in the industry. If WWE were to sell, what do you think that would mean to professional wrestling on every level? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, everybody looks to WWE as the, you know, one that you either want to aspire to be like or at the bare minimum, right, like aspire to be at that level. Uh, the thing that I have found interesting myself about the business is, is that live event attendance and ratings have continued to decline for WWE for multiple years, yet they are uh, as profitable now, thanks to their television de deals, as they've ever been. And I think that says a lot about how smart Vince McMahon has been in, in knowing the industry. I mean, he knows the industry better, especially from a promoter standpoint, you know, whether you agree with Vince or, or you don't on many things, you know, the, the one business uh, that he's been crazy successful at continues to be wrestling and in WWE. And so I think the moment, if the company does sell, I think that, um, you know, what that does for creative and the product itself is likely going to be of, of biggest concern to the fan base, um, you know, how, and do I think if they continue to have declining attendance and declining ratings that they will be able to stay as profitable um, as they are now without Vince McMahon's leadership? I don't know. I mean, in many ways, Vince has been the only guy that ever succeeded at it. So, you know, the odds aren't necessarily in the favor. On top of it, right, the other thing that amazes so many people, you know, I've been asked a lot about this, you know, just at work and, and elsewhere because people know my history in the business. Here you have the head of a Fortune 500 company who gets caught paying off multiple women for sexual misconduct, okay? This is something that's been well-known in the wrestling industry for the last 30 years. Like, 
Tell me one wrestler that's worked for WWE that doesn't know that Vince was involved with payoffs for sexually harassing women, right? Like that that's been well well known. The fact that this day and age within the woke movement, within Me Too, within all of these different things, he effectively swerves the entire industry to the point where he is effectively getting a pass for all of that. If that doesn't tell you the genius of Vince McMahon's running of wrestling and uh, working a swerve on the public and the United States and the world uh, the way that someone would in wrestling, I don't know what does. I mean, who else this day and age is getting a pass for, for that? And there's people with one instance of misconduct that aren't getting a pass and who have been completely canceled. There's Vince with multiple cases of it. And w- what does he do? He negotiates himself back in control of the of WWE and effectively has zero consequence from it at all. That's brilliant. You know, say what you want about how awful it might be that he's getting a pass. Sure, it's awful. But when you see that kind of genius and that kind of ability behind a company, I think the first question anyone's going to likely have if the company sells is what happens now? Um, and and uh, because is there any anyone out there that is can be equated to the power of Vince McMahon and the ability of Vince McMahon? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people would love to step up and try, um, but everyone else who has has failed for the last what thirty, forty years. So um, yeah, I think I think it's very interesting. Who knows if if he's just playing and it's going to be you know pushed down, or if he's actually going to sell the company, but. No matter what happens, uh, him and his family are going to wind up doing just fine. I have no doubt about that. Well, we're down to the last several minutes of the show, and I want to make sure we have ample time for you to say anything you would like to say, plug and promote absolutely anything at all you would like. Floor is all yours. Yeah, so just want to say thank you. You know, like I said earlier, the fact that people are still interested in uh, the experience and the time that I had in this industry and, and working directly with Roddy Piper, um, you know, is something that, that I value and cherish very much. And I'm exceptionally humbled that people want to hear my my story and, and um, uh, you know, the process that, that I've had through life and, and, you know, really growing up and becoming an adult in the middle and at the top of, of professional wrestling industry. Um, really, really appreciative of that. In terms of anything uh, to plug, uh, you know, I continue to buy and sell uh, baseball cards and invest on eBay. Uh, it's Rock On Inc. Uh, spelled R-A-C-H, like my last name, Rock On Inc. Um, so feel free to check that out if you want. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, all of that under my real name, Lewis Rock, of course. Um, but, yeah, very much uh, thank you for the opportunity. I think that's everything that I have to plug. And uh, just, again, it's always a pleasure. Your questions are exceptionally thoughtful, and I've always enjoyed very much uh, coming on to your show, and, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. I will look forward to the next time we have you back for sure. And I want to thank you once again for coming back today. We appreciate it. And best of luck with the baseball cards. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, my best to you, your team, and, and the crew there. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Fans, jump on the YouTubes. Go check out Lewis Rock's work. 
He was a great independent professional wrestler. Also, if you have not read it, go out there and get Roddy Piper's autobiography. Uh, He has the one he did while he was living, and then, of course, his children finished a second one, which came out a few years ago. Get that one as well. We will be back with you on Sunday afternoon. We have Alexis Dravkoff on the show, Russian performer based in the state of California. He will be returning to the show. And then one week from this very day, we have the 1CW promoter out of Delaware, Sean Hardy. He's been promoting many, many years in the Delaware area, so we look forward to hearing what he has to say with us. Everybody stay safe out there. Get out there and support your local independent professional wrestling wherever there might be some near you, and we will talk to you soon. Talking.